guys, welcome back to another episode of Amateur Hour. I hope everyone's having a fantastic week and I'm so hyped to be a part of it. Thanks to everyone who's stuck around or who's just now checking out the pod for the first time. And if you happen to be the latter, I personally think you've come at the right time. This episode is going to be a little different from my usual format as part of a retrospective full circle story I did on a former world number one ranked amateur, Ashlyn Ramsey. If you haven't read the article, I highly encourage you to do so. Check it out on firepitcollective.com. Takes a pretty heavy dive through someone who has been everywhere and back with amateur and professional golf from being at the very top to being at the very bottom. After winning six times in four months and a freshman year spent dominating at Clemson, Ashlyn turned pro and went through a myriad of struggles through injuries in trying to maintain tour status and various battles through her time as a professional golfer. Eventually, she decided to step away from the game, but a life-changing moment ended up bringing her back to it. So her resilience has been so inspiring and her reflections on an incredible journey are definitely worth your time. In this episode, we brief over the golf stuff and her life now. The article, like I said, is a much deeper dive than this podcast is, but we also take a bit of a different direction. We learn a little bit more about Ashlyn today and who she's become and bring more context into the successful woman she's become from her thoughts on the pressure-packed culture of junior and amateur golf bit more on what her game looks like now to an updated dream for some which I thought was pretty great just gear up for plenty of laughs and a lot of great insight from a once elite amateur who's grown into such an accomplished young professional and has quite the tale so stick around for the ride it's a lot of fun I had a lot of fun talking to Ashlyn and writing this story it's become my favorite story i've done and i really appreciate anyone who's stuck around to listen and check it out thanks so much i hope you enjoy ashlyn how are you what are you up to on this friday with illigo and your life up in new york i am good it's been kind of a busy couple of weeks and um, we just finished out the event season with illigo so i had my last event on monday so have the uh, 20 events that we had, you know, through the season behind me, and now just kind of working on some off-season projects, getting, um, you know, some things together for next year. Um, I'm actually taking a trip down to Kiowa to play the Ocean Course um, next week, so I'm looking forward to that. That's so exciting. Okay, PGA Championship course, that's what we love. so can you kind of describe like what an event with Illigo looks like for those who don't know? Yeah, so Illigo is a um, private golf membership where members have access to various private clubs in the New York area. So I work to host events that are primarily used by our members for client entertainment. So, um, you know, it's often hosted at courses that are insanely good, like Liberty National, Somerset Hills, Hudson National. So basically, I run these events, which gives our our membership an opportunity to entertain clients or to just play these like insanely, you know, bucket list courses that they have always wanted to play. So I love, you know, having a hand in executing those events and then just to see like everyone enjoy it so much and to enjoy the course. It's really, you know, satisfying and fulfilling for me. Awesome. 
So I want to talk about maybe you as a person and kind of looking back and comprehensively, you know, what's made you the person today. Obviously, in the article, we take a much deeper dive with this, but just taking a bit of a stab at it now, there's been a complete identity shift within you within like less than 10 years, which is so wild. Um kind of unpacking everything that happened to you between like a meteoric rise in your late teens, you go to Clemson for a little bit, uh, you turn pro in a matter of your year, injury, gaining status, losing it, then completely changing your life, stepping away from the game and just kind of finding it again through loss. How's it been kind of reflecting on all of that? It's such a wild ride. I feel like uh, I turned 26 in December and it definitely feels like from, you know, age 14 to 26 has been insane to say the least. There's a lot of things that I think I've gone through, um, whether it be through golf, through my family, you know, through like just life changes in general that have taught me so much. And I think that, you know, just allowing myself the freedom and flexibility to have these changes and to have a change of opinions or a change of heart on how I feel about myself, how I feel about my environment um, has kind of been like the biggest takeaway from all of this, because I think that, you know, if you would have told me at 16 that I was going to be on the LPGA, um, you know, in a matter of, I think it was four years after that, um, I probably would not have believed you. Like it just, everything that I had envisioned for myself, um, you know, you obviously want to accomplish it, but it's like, you're so focused on just getting, you know, to the next step, to the next event, to the next milestone in life that it's kind of hard to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. So just in like looking back over the last 10 years, I think that so much change has happened and really like giving myself the freedom to let those changes take place and kind of like take my hands off of it and know that I can't really control every single aspect has been huge for me. More so when you were younger, you maybe had like a bit of a survival mindset and now you're, you kind of just take things by the day and now obviously you're more aware of the bigger picture. Um, but kind of shifting your mindset into more of acceptance and gratitude, you know, where does your family play a role in that? Because they were so involved in your golf journey and, you know, such a big part of who you are today. And then when you took the trip to India, you took it with Taylor. She ended up finding a job out of it. And, you know, now you both live in New York and your lives have both kind of merged again. But where does family play a role, a bigger role in that essentially? Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, I talk to both my parents every day, which I'm so thankful for. And I think that um, just having, you know, a support system is everything to me and having, you know, my family to always be that constant in like a world of change and like fast pace and especially being here in New York and just coming into contact with so many people, like just to have the ability to know that my family is going to support me and that they always will they'll keep me honest. Like if I'm ever, you know, if upset about a situation or, you know, can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, they are always there to like bring me back to reality and be like, this is not the end of the world. Like you've gone through bigger things. So I think just, you know, being able to communicate with my family, we all support each other. Like, you know, I help my sister through her problems or whatever they may be. And she does the same. And then we get to enjoy the good times together. So I think that, 
you know, having them to constantly like ground me and to kind of like just have that support system is so huge because then it gives me the flexibility um, and, you know, the confidence to really go out and, and do what I want to do. Going back to 2013, when do you think the height of your dominance in golf hit you? Because six wins in four months, I think, especially in the moment, is a lot to process. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I don't even know that it ever really hit me at the time. And still, I almost have like a bit of detachment from that success because I think in golf especially like I I can't speak to other sports but I know that in golf you are so focused on like you may be winning four times in six four times in six months or whatever it was you may be on like a streak but um someone else is going to do the same thing or someone else is going to do it better or you know you've done it once you have to do it again so it was always this mindset of like it's never enough. And I think that in some cases that helped me because it motivated me to work harder. But then if you don't have the balance of like acknowledging your accomplishments and really feeling like that then builds your confidence, it goes a little bit wasted, which I think in my case, um, I never like gave myself the acknowledgement or praise that, you know, I was being successful. I was, um, you know, winning these events. And I had like a a confidence from within, but I wasn't able to build on that confidence as much as I would have been had I really realized how successful I was. I think you had a lot of internal conviction and you knew how to handle the pressure and you knew how to deal with that kind of environment. But do you think, do you think later on you might have felt the confidence or would maybe was there any kind of derailment you think from the injury that never allowed you to truly feel it when you were playing full-time? Yeah, I think with the injury or injuries that, that then came up, um, you know, after I left Clemson, I think that always having that in the back of my mind and having that worry of, am I going to be physically capable of playing in these events? Am I going to be capable of making the swing changes that I want to make that all kind of like over time just wears you down. And I think that the mental effort and energy that I was spending having to, you know, go to physical therapy and really tell the therapist, like what I was feeling that day and keep a diary of all my, you know, my pain and, and that kind of thing. Um, definitely like detracted or, or distracted me from bigger picture of what I wanted to do with my game and like being able to really have that same conviction. I mean, it's, it's different. Like when you're a junior golfer, you kind of like don't have those problems and the weight of the world on you. So you're just able to go out and play. And like, certainly I had some weight on me in high school, but it was really just like my passion for the game was what drove me to want to be successful at it and I wanted to like prove to everyone that I was as good as I thought I was um and then when you know after I left Clemson those injuries the pressure of leaving after my freshman year the pressure of trying to make it on tour it all definitely you know was a combination and it just kind of added up and and it contributed to a lot of the um the stress and I'm sure that that stress and contributed to more injuries so I'm sure it was a a vicious cycle do you feel like there was ever a moment where you caught your breath, essentially being a pro golfer? 
I don't think so. <laughs> um, you know, you have these like off seasons, but during the off seasons, I was working and trying to, you know, build up funds for the next year. Um, I was trying to improve my game in places that I thought it needed to be improved. And, you know, whether it was working out or, you know, planning my travel for the next season, it's always going to be something. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I've taken away from, you know, playing the transition from playing professional golf to now in the, in the working world and in the business setting, there's always going to be something and there's always going to be some sort of stress. There's always going to be some sort of, you know, situation where you have to handle adversity or like a bad email. Like you're always going to have to go through that. And I think just having, you know, the perspective of it, of like, I've gone through more things. This is not going to stop me. And it's in the grand scheme of things, I'm going to forget about it and move on. Looking back, you know, you mentioned that you had a little bit of weight that you started to feel that in high school, but kind of looking back as a whole, as someone who competed on the highest level in junior and amateur golf, and then turning pro and going to Q school for those years, you know, what are your thoughts on the competitive culture surrounding, you know, such a young person because you were still in your late teens when you turned pro you were still around the same age when you were dominating the amateur game do you feel like it's an appropriate amount of pressure on a kid or do you feel like maybe there should be some changes in terms of those kinds of expectations for people at the top yeah i think that that's an interesting question and it definitely you know makes you kind of i mean in looking at how my junior golf career was and then with parents specifically asking me advice for their junior players or their like young girls playing the game. Um, it's definitely something that I've thought about, but I always say that the pressure or the motivation, the drive to play, like it always came from within me. I definitely think that my parents pushed me in ways that I couldn't push myself, but it was because I was expressing that I wanted something bigger. So I would always say that my goal was to play on the LPGA tour. And, you know, let's say I'm only practicing two days a week. Obviously that equation is not going to add up. So my parents were never going to sugarcoat it and be like, oh yeah, you can for sure make it on the LPGA tour practicing two days a week. Like it wasn't going to happen. So I think that the same like foundation that I speak about when I talk about my family, they are always going to make sure that I am aware of what I need to do to be successful. And then the, the executing it is up to me. Like it's really, if, if you want to be self-disciplined enough to do that, you know the path that you have to take. So I think that in looking at like how junior players approach the game, I think where you run into trouble is if that big picture is not conceptualized by the player themselves. I think if it's a parent's dream or if it's someone else's dream that they're trying to then push onto a junior player, that's where you run into um, issues. And I think that that pressure is too much. Yeah, I think that alignment is important with everybody being on the same page and being a team. And yeah, like it can't be a parent living vicariously through a kid. You know, it's got to be like, hey, I really want to do this. We really want this for you too. Great. We're on right. the same page. Right. Because yeah, too, there's been too many examples of different like families that have been kind of like placating their dreams on their kid. And you're just like, okay, whoa, that was kind of a train wreck. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think any 
I don't think anyone, whether you're an adult or a child, can really withstand someone else's pressures being put onto you. I think it's, um, it can be a vicious cycle, I think. Yeah, essentially. What's a part of being on tour that maybe you think most people on the outside don't consider or maybe you yourself didn't consider going into it? I think the biggest um, factor to life on tour is the fact that you are in a different city every week Um, and not just, you know, like arriving to the city and going to the golf course, like that's, you know, the travel day in itself is a lot, but I think a lot of times I was not familiar with, with where I was going. I was staying in host housing, so I was constantly you know, I was meeting a new family every week and in a very genuine and sincere way, like wanting to get to know them and they wanted to get to know me because I'm staying in their house and like, they're obviously interested. So like having to go through the, the process of really like getting to know a host family, getting to know the golf course, getting to know the players that I'm playing with, you know, on Thursday, Friday, in most cases, because I hardly made it to the weekend, but, um, you know, getting to know all of these new things, like it's, your environment is constantly changing. And I think for, you know, when you're in junior golf, you're, for the most part, just traveling for like a weekend or like a couple days at a time, you go back home, you go back to your same routine of school. With professional golf, there is no like routine at all about it. It is every day is something different. Every week is a, a new like challenge. I think that you know, I, I embrace change, but I'm also someone who creates the stability uh, in situations. And there was hardly, hardly any stability or knowns uh, about playing professional golf. So I think that that was definitely something, you know, um, that is not widely known or like widely thought about when you're seeing these players, you know, on the weekends uh, in contention, it's not really something that you consider what their what their weeks look like let's tap into a known or certainty for you what was your favorite course to play competitively oh that's a good question um I loved playing Lake Merced out in San Francisco there was a um LPGA event there I played in like a U.S. girls junior there um beautiful course so that definitely is like top of mind for me uh just in terms of like fun (laughs) fun experiences (laughs) hi porter (laughs) she wanted to say hello (laughs) of course we can always have a porter cameo on the pod no problem okay so i want to do another throwback for you you wrote when you were at clemson your dream foursome i want to read it to you oh god there's no telling (laughs) It was you, Jack Nicholas, Chase Crawford, and Bubba Watson. Has that changed? Um, probably a bit. Yeah, I would say so. Um, oh, that is a that's always a tough question because I feel like there's so many different ways to answer it. Like, you can always throw like, oh, my dad in there. Like if you want to be, you know, but I also see him all the time. Like he loves to watch the game more so than play it. Um, Jack Nicholas would be fantastic to play with. I think, oh, this would be so hard. Um, I would definitely update my like celebrity crush to probably like Liam Hemsworth if he plays golf or maybe like 
Oh, I saw Harry Styles plays golf now, so I think that could be a good one. <laughs> so you're taking um, Harry over Nile? <laughs> I'm taking Harry over Nile for sure. I was never really a One Direction fan, but a Harry Styles fan for sure. Um, and then who? I think I would have to update this to Tiger. Like, I think Bubba's out and I think Tiger's in. Yeah, yeah, solid. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good updated dream foursome. For now, that's what I'm going with. Ask me next yeah. time. Mind. <laughs> <laughs> Eight years later, guys. This is yeah. this is her dream for us. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about maybe the evolution of like your personal game because you mentioned to me while well, you had status that you were hitting a lower draw that you weren't holding the greens as well with, and you know you're constantly making swing changes that you could to play comfortably essentially. But nowadays, you spend most of your golf playing on a more casual level, you know, I, from, from a work perspective, but you still play regularly. What changes have you made to still enjoy playing as comfortably as possible, given your nerve injury? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the game definitely looks a lot different for me now. Um, from a physical standpoint, like if I were to show you a swing video, now versus when I was on tour, it really doesn't look much different except um, like obviously a little bit more natural and I have less speed. Um, but it's interesting, you know, all the work that I put into my swing back then just to make it like more consistent and, you know, to make these changes as I spoke with you about, about hitting the ball higher so I could hold the greens. It really like, I don't, I think it I did, I was overboard at times with it. Like I, I definitely could have gotten away with my natural swing, just like improving my short game a little bit more. Um, but these days the short game is not what it used to be. I would say that my chipping is very hit or miss. Um, putting like the 10 feet and in is definitely not as, as refined as it was when I was spending hours on the putting green. Um, but I'm still able to get it around and I, I really enjoy you know, just playing casually now. I'll play with uh, members of Aligo. I will play with friends. So, um, you know, it's enough for me for right now. And I think that not having to put the time and the hours into practicing has definitely helped my shoulder. Um, and physically, I'm capable of playing now, which I am thankful for. <laughs> That's always <laughs> the best thing. Yeah. So I want to talk about outside of Illigo, like what your life looks like. And you spent, what, you've probably spent about three years in New York now? Years, yeah, which is crazy. I feel like sometimes I feel like I'm a local and sometimes I'm like, have I ever been in this city before? <laughs> like, depends on the day. Well, you've perfectly allowed me to segue into my next question, which is what has been your biggest I am not from here moment in New York? Like the craziest culture shock you've had? Oh, so many, like, where do we even start? Um, I think that the, probably like the, the most magnified moment that I realized it's just a whole different beast here in New York, for lack of a better word. Um, when I, when I moved to the city, I didn't have any friends. So I really only knew like one or two people just kind of in passing. Um, so I was trying to make friends, like trying to figure out, uh, like a friend group or some, something in the city. Um, but I, you know, in going out, going out to dinners or going out for drinks with friends, um, I realized that 
you know, a one or 2 a.m. type of night is like early for people in New York. So I think it's very easy to get kind of caught up in like the social scenes um, that are staying out, you know, particularly late. Um, so that was eye-opening as everything in South Carolina pretty much shuts at midnight. So <laughs> um, I'm definitely a morning person more so than a night person. So trying to stay up, um, you know, and going out for dinner, drinks with friends was like, very difficult at first but I've gotten a little bit better but now that I have a dog I still have a hard stop at like 1 a.m that's my, <laughs> that's the extent of my crazy nights so you, you never really built that up though in your one year of college did you no I did not I was I had other priorities in college more so than um you know pushing the limits of my self-made curfew <laughs> <laughs> so you built up the different circadian rhythm later Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's still it's still a work in progress sometimes. But um, no, I actually, when I moved to the city in order to make friends and still my best friend in the city, I met, I'm, I can't even believe I'm gonna say this, but I'm just gonna out myself. I met her on Bumble BFF, which Oh my god, that's a hot tip for anyone who moves to a new city and doesn't know anyone. Um, you definitely have to be very cautious when you're utilizing it because they're are some interesting characters but I met up with her and we hit it off and we were like each other's first person that we met on Bumble BFF and we're still friends three years later so so you didn't keep shopping around do you choose no. the one <laughs> I found one and I was like okay I'm done pushing the limits of this app I'm I'm good I found one <laughs> then we could go out and make friends together you know, then we had people we could introduce each other to. So I just needed one. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's like the sweetest Bumble BFF story ever. Yeah, if they want to sponsor me, that's great. But <laughs> just putting that out there. Just throwing it out there. Can't hurt. I want to throw this one question at you. You, for a while, when you started living in New York, you weren't there as much since you were traveling so much around the world. Um, spent a lot of time in India and different countries in Asia. But I want to know, is there anywhere you're itching to get back to? Mm, that's a great question. I spent most of my time when I was traveling either in India in various cities or in Singapore because my sister was living there. Um, I loved Singapore. I thought it was a really, you know, it's crazy what they've been able to do with the city. It's very modern, it's very clean. Um, but we were able to go to a few places um, like Koh Samui in Thailand and uh, uh, Langkawi in Malaysia. And just being able to, you know, like kind of easily hop around from Singapore was one of the things that I really um, enjoyed about getting to travel and specifically the benefit of having my sister live there. <laughs> um, but I think these days I want to visit like Europe more. I'd love to go to like Greece and Italy. Um, I'd love to go to Spain. So um, yeah, I want to explore Europe a little bit. Hopefully COVID is getting behind us. So the traveling would be in my future. Interesting. Yeah. 2022. Time to book all the yeah. trips. We can we can start the goal list, I guess, now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw two more questions at you. When you play at Illigo with the members there, do they ever recognize you? Or when, you know, they ask about your background or anything about you, do you dive into it or do you keep it at a minimum? Kind of like, you know, the Uber driver who asks you like, oh, what do you do? This, this and that. Do you ever yeah. go on the tangent or do you keep it? minimum 
I keep it at such a minimum that sometimes it catches me off guard if people do know that I played on tour or if they know that I was like, you know, ranked number one amateur. Like it, it catches me by surprise. We just had a, um, an event at Bayonne Golf Club and I've played there with some Bayonne members and also in our Aligo events there. But um, someone came into the pro shop as I was like purchasing prizes, you know, for the event. And they were like, I've known you for nine months and I didn't know you were ranked number one amateur. And I was like, taken by surprise that they knew that. I'm like, how did you find this out? And I guess one of the caddies who had caddied for me previously um, was then caddying for him. So it's just funny, like I almost, um, it's flattering obviously when, when people like compliment and like kind of acknowledge like what I've been through, but especially living in New York, I'm just so used to not being like the most interesting person or like, you know, the most accomplished person in the room because everyone here is so, like successful and has their own stories. So uh, these days I'm much more interested in what other people are up to. And like, I play with a lot of successful business people. So I kind of take that um, spotlight away from myself. And I'm like, tell me about your career. How did you build this business? And like really try to talk about them, um, whether that's a defense mechanism. So I don't have to talk about myself or if I'm not interested, I'm not sure, but I've learned a lot through it. And lastly, kind of foreshadowing into the weekend, Clemson football has seen better times. Oh, you and yeah. I both know that. <laughs> it's okay. I'm suffering just as much as a Gators fan. It's Florida Georgia weekend. Right. This, you know, I'm trying to block it out as much as I can, but I'm still going to watch it. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I'm sure the people would love to know some of your personal thoughts on Clemson season and looking ahead. Yes, it is not the best we've ever seen, but you know what? Um, I venture to say it's not the worst that I've seen either. So I still am like a football lover. I enjoy the sport. I love college football. Not so much NFL these days, but I was thinking like, is it time to, to bandwagon an NFL team so that I can have like some, you know, semblance of joy when it comes to watching football. But um, I think it'll be fine. Like I, I, really believe in Dabo. Um, I think that what he's been able to do with the program is amazing. I do miss the Trevor Lawrence days, um, but you know, I'm hoping that we can kind of turn it around. Uh, if not this season, hopefully in the near future. I think Trevor's in a spot where he needs Clemson just as much as they need him. Perhaps. Yes, perhaps. I'm sure he's losing <laughs> his Clemson days by now too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I was going to wrap it up there. I was going to ask like a non-golf sports moment, but I would assume it's like attributed to Clemson, right? Um, lately these days, okay, so the World Series is happening now. And I am, I guess this year since the Olympics, I've really wanted to dive into like sports that I know nothing about. So actually like on my Instagram, I've on my Instagram, I've just made it like a joke of like my uneducated sports recaps. So um Right now, I'm really into the World Series. Game three is tonight, and um, I am definitely pulling for the Braves with my Georgia connection, but um, apparently the Astros are favored, so we're going to see if, if the Braves can get it done. These recaps are hilarious. I'm just going to put that out there. Like Everybody needs to follow Ashlyn on Instagram ASAP. They're, they, 
They're the funniest thing. Like, I love them so much. And I also relate because baseball is not a strong sport of mine whatsoever. But these are great. Thank you. I really, I know I'm going to get Porter from her squeaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my recaps, I really don't know much about um, many sports. Like, I understand the basics of some things, but like, I don't follow sports closely enough to know who is the favorite, like who's going to win, whatever. So I just kind of get on my Instagram and talk about like other things that I'm curious about. Like someone in the, I think it was game one, the player, like, uh, like going to bat, he rubbed his hand in the dirt and then like, yeah. and I'm like, why aren't we using chalk for this guys? Like, aren't we like, are we better than this? Or is this just like a pride thing with baseball players that they need to like rub dirt on their bat before they hit? I don't know. It could be a superstition, but you know, I just like, uh, talking about the the aspects of sports that don't really get spoken about. <laughs> it's a great perspective to have. Yours yours is super valuable. So, <laughs> no, but it was a great observation because I'm like, I never really thought about that. It's part of the routine. How my brain works. I don't really like, you know, one would be focusing on like, oh, like, you know, how was the player performing that night or whatever? And I'm like, why did he just rub dirt on his back? <laughs> <laughs> Let's count all the RBIs. What's, what's yeah. up with the dirt? <laughs> yeah, I the dirt, my friend. And also the, the Braves player who wears the pearls, like that's a hot take, okay? Like the, most of them wear like gold chains, but he's got pearls on. So, you know, just the little things. <laughs> I love the individuality. Like, hey, I'm here for it. Like exactly. the little things. That's that, I mean, that's, that's good that you make those observations because that's like a lot of the things that like journalists have to pick up. Like, let's not pick up anything that's like ordinary that's going on. That, that's a good keen sense of observation. Good for you. Have a career change in my future, maybe. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. Another another one is on the horizon. <laughs> Add it to the list of changes. <laughs> I call illegal right now. Call them and tell them you got to go. Okay. Don't watch oh. this. <laughs> all right. That's all I had for you. Thank you so much. Like, I appreciate it.